So, you know, when we talk about things like this, we ask the question, how, how can we restore happiness if, you know, the conditions that foster happiness are somehow interrupted? In my case, interrupted because of a broken arm. Uh, and how can we be happy even while we are suffering? When we're maybe physically or mentally a little miserable, how can we still have any measure of happiness? Today we're going to ask, what does Paul teach about happiness? How is happiness shaped and expressed in the Apostle Paul's life? And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you'll know that his life included a lot of turmoil and hardship. There are plenty of details in Paul's life that were unlikely to produce happiness, it seems to me. Two passages are sufficient to illustrate this point. One in the book of Philippians and the other in 2 Corinthians. And together, they illustrate very well for us uh, the loss of conditions for happiness even while they may even hint a little, how does he get around this? How does he get around this problem? So if we are looking at Philippians, you might be surprised by this passage. He takes stock of his life twice in the book of Philippians, once early on, I think, in the first chapter, another time here in chapter 3. And so here he begins to write, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, the Christian church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, in this passage, Paul begins to discuss for us, uh, he lists out for us all the things that he excelled at. And some of the things that he excelled at had to do with honor that was given to him because of his birth, right? I'm sure you've known people who were born a certain way, you know, born into a rich family. I was not. If you were born with a silver spoon then all I can say is many of the rest of us envied you. Paul was given many excellent honors just because he was born in Israel. He was born to, in the tribe of Benjamin. He had a depth of heritage within that group of people that ran so deep, he said, I'm as good as it gets. A Hebrew among Hebrews. Other details convey the honor that Paul gained by excelling at things. One of the things that he had excelled at was, he says, I know how to keep religious law, and I've done a real good job of it. In fact, he said, beyond that, I've even defended the honor and what I perceive to be the faith of my community, of my people. I defended that faith to the point where I was willing to harshly put down those who I thought were opposed to it. I would say he had a pretty high standard. 
Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is that when he begins to recount these many excellencies, he does so only to reject them. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. With these four verses, Paul is actually describing for us some serious loss. Everything that made him what he was, all the honor that he received for being born a particular person, all the things that he excelled at, all gone. It would be very easy for us to think of these things as a great loss. If you were to lose being an American, would that mean something to you? If you were to lose being a Seventh-day Adventist, would that loss mean something to you? If you were to lose your occupation, maybe, sometimes even a family member, your loved one, would that loss mean something to you? And so I think the break from, from Paul's previous history involves a real cost, and it poses a real challenge, I believe, to happiness. And if Philippians describe, you know, the loss of conditions for happiness, uh, things around, you know, centering around personal identity and perhaps social bonding, 2 Corinthians offers for us a different set of very unhappy details. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29, Paul wrote, Are they, the super apostles that he's describing, not the 12, by the way, but other people in Corinth, which he calls super apostles. Are they super apostles? Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number. Let's stop just for a minute. Any of you remember the last time you were whipped? I mean, solidly whipped? How'd it feel? I remember one time my, my, my father took a belt to me. My father had 20-inch biceps, which means he was built like a small gorilla. And when he laid a leather whip to my very tiny backside, and I have always been small, 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 I had a bruise that was about this big. It started just above my waist, and it went clear down to my knees. Now, in today's world, that would not be allowed for. But in the world I grew up in, that was no big deal. Do you remember the last time you were whipped? Paul said, I have been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. That was the most allowable by Jewish law. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys by foot. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but really are not. I've worked hard and long enduring many sleepless nights. Let's try that again. I've worked hard and long enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Mm, None of this sounds good to me. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Can you imagine this? Okay. Do you feel my weakness? This is me trying to close my hand. You could shove a book in that. I would love to be able to close my hand again. Who is weak, Paul said, without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? The summary of Paul's tough experiences include hard work, imprisonment, beatings, and other events that brought him multiple times, he said, very, very close to death. He offers nine occasions, at least, in which he was badly beaten. All of these would have left scars and a lot of soft tissue damage. Perhaps even multiple broken bones. These are the very things that medical professionals are trying to help me avoid or get over right now. I would not wish them on anyone. And it seems to me like Paul must have had a lot of problems in this vein. Five times Paul's back was scarred with the maximum number of lashes allowable under Jewish law. Three times he suffered one of the most brutal of Roman punishments uh, that you, you you could get as a Roman citizen short of execution, beatings with rods. I don't even want to think about going there. Such beatings, I think, inflicted not only a lot of physical injury, but I want you to think of the social damage that was done. Do you know how humiliating it would be to get beaten by, you know, the uh, leaders of your local community? They take you outside and they beat you publicly. That could not have been good for the psyche, seems to me. What if they did it and they beat you within an inch of your life more than once? And then, of course, comes this question. How many of you, if you were treated like this, you were beaten publicly multiple, multiple, multiple times, how many of you would openly, candidly admit to it? Paul writes about it. He almost boasts about it, not in a bad way, but in a good way. He says, for the sake of Jesus, I was willing to endure all of this. Mm, I would have probably covered it up. 
You can imagine when I was a kid and I got whipped on by my dad for doing things. I didn't usually tell a lot of people. Yet Paul was very open about this kind of public humiliation. Man. Paul then tells us about the slave-like conditions under which he worked. Manual labor, unsafe travel, hunger, exposure to the elements, sleep deprivation. I don't like any of those. I can remember one time as a locksmith, I was called out to do some work for the IRS. They were doing a uh, seizure of a property. And the day I went out to do the work, it was pouring down rain and 34 degrees outside. I wanted to open the unlock the front door, which was undercover, and they said, and I said, the easiest way to do it is just simply for me to ruin this lock, which I can literally do in a minute. They said, we can't, by law, do that. I, nobody wanted me to take the back door. Why? Because there was a funnel of water that was racing down the roof, and it was pouring right down on the back door. And I'm supposed to kneel there and pick this lock in freezing conditions, you know, under a waterfall. <sighs> you know, I, no way do I want that. Paul's talking about, I have really done some difficult things. Exposure to the elements, sleep deprivation. Now, in the opinion of many people in, of Paul's day, certainly the opinion of those people to whom he's writing this letter, that would be the people in Corinth, those kind of admissions, they're not exactly going to go down as your best accomplishments. They're going to say, are you kidding me? You're using this as to pad your resume? I mean, if you were a great guy, you wouldn't be undergoing any of this stuff. And that brings us to this question, how did Paul cope with so much adversity? How did he do it? I mean, the long list of, of his hardships stands, I think, as a profound challenge to what most of us consider to be the conditions for happiness. There's little room for some of the things we've talked about that can create happiness, like you know, pleasure, things that are pleasurable to you. How about virtue? There's a virtue-based happiness. Paul's virtues actually got him in, in most of those messes. They're the reasons why he was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, etc., sleep-deprived. What kept Paul from becoming bitter? Alongside these descriptions of social disruption, even unjust treatment by other people, Paul's letters, I think, offer some possible remedies. And it seems to me like two, two categories stand out. How do you create new conditions for happiness? Well, the first thing you do is you create a new social identity. It's really important to know who you are. And secondly, a new pattern of meaning that turns what's important upside down. And what we mean by the second new condition is this, that uh, Paul, 
found a new and meaningful life that was very different from his previous life. Living a meaningful life is certainly a condition, it seems to me, for happiness. So in this idea of a new identity, one was a new and shared name. It's nice to know what to call yourself. And then, of course, to have in common with other people a shared history and, as it were, a culture, which includes what you value. Now, obviously, at the time I think Paul was writing, Jews and Gentiles had none of this stuff in common. And so Paul set about creating it for, it for them. In general, I think he was a bit of a revolutionary, and sometimes I wish he had been a little more revolutionary. But let me illustrate. In the book of Romans, chapter 9, we read, No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Boy, not a single person says hallelujah, but it impacts every one of you. Am I right? Yeah. No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Thank you. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham clearly, I might say, had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. Now, what Abraham's doing here is he says, I want to share this with you. I want to provide for you a shared name and shared backstory, a shared heritage. Now, what's not revolutionary about it is he includes everyone else into Israel. Uh, wished he'd kind of gotten past that just a little myself, but I understand what he's doing. But in Romans chapter 9 through 11, one of the things you'll discover is there's an awful lot of scripture references through that portion of the book of Romans. And the idea, Paul is saying, look, we share the same family history and story. We have these things in common. I'm including you in this story. These are the things that are capable of keeping us together. Paul worked very hard, I think, at creating and maintaining this new sense of being a family. You know this, I'm sure you've heard this song, we are family, right? Yeah. Are you family? What if you've gone away from all the family that you have? I don't know about you, but I have moved to a place where I didn't have family. Ohio. I'm from the Northwest. We lived in Ohio for 14 years. Being in a place where you have no family, do you know what you're going to do on holidays? Christmas, Thanksgiving? Right? We didn't always because we didn't have family. When Paul wants to talk about being family, he talks also about, you know, we are the body of Christ. Together we make up the body of Christ. And our highest virtue is love. And you want to know what we mean by love? We mean putting others good before your own. So let me illustrate. Romans 14, 15 to 16. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. 
Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Wow. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. And then, of course, there's this famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. We are a family, Paul says, because we are the body of Christ. And our highest virtue is love. And we express our love by putting you first above ourselves. Well, that sounds like a pretty decent identity. Incredible identity. And one more thing. Throughout his letters, Paul was constantly scattering the language of affection. Did you grow up in a home where affection was expressed verbally or not? Some of you would have to say not, unfortunately. I can't say, I mean, I, 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 I can't say verbally I heard that much affection from my parents, particularly from my dad, until later in life, where my dad experienced that profound change we call conversion. I was determined that our daughter would not grew up like that and I made sure that was the case we always end phone calls with love you we say it often and Paul was constantly expressing affection for people it looks like this in some places you know first Thessalonians 2 17 to 3 verse 1 as for us brothers and sisters when for a short time, notice that, in for a short time, we were made orphans by being separated from you. That's strong language. In person, though, not in heart. We were never separated from you in heart. We longed with great eagerness to see you face to face, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, wanted to again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, they were only separated, he said, for a short time. Look at this language. Or how about this one? Galatians chapter 4, verse 15. What has become of the goodwill you felt? For I testify that had it been possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. 
Here he's not talking about the love he has for people, but rather the love they had for him. And that's some pretty strong language he's using. You would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Now that's family in a big, big way. I told, told you before I had this great friend in the Seattle area. Her husband's got a major problem, needs a kidney. His is completely failing. You know, it's done. She finds out that she's able to give to her husband a one in 10,000th chance. She's an eligible donor. She gave him one of her kidneys. Would you be willing to part with your body parts? To keep your pastor alive? Whew. Okay. That may be a little too personal, right? I'm not sure I want you to answer that. Um, and once more, in Philemon, verse 18, if Anisimus, the slave, has wronged you in any way, Paul tells Philemon, if he owes you anything, send me the bill. I'll take care of it. I've had the opportunity to do that a couple of times for people, and it's always been amazing. In all these ways, Paul made the lives and well-being of other people an aspect not only of his own life, but he made it a big deal, a big aspect of his life. In all these ways, he was attempting to stir up greater feelings of kinship and, and love amongst those he was writing to. Not just the church, but also the entire community, the church, that little church was situated in. These small church families, he say, provide the social glue that will help you be happy. This little church, Paul says, is capable of providing the social glue that will help you be happy. Are you happy? So Paul helped foster a new social identity in the church. The second important move Paul made was to voice a uh, kind of new worldview, one that would change your understanding uh, about suffering in particular, about chronic pain and more. Not only the new social identity, but a new pattern of meaning that turns what's important to you upside down. So one of the ways in which he did this was very odd, and this is an odd verse I know to illustrate it, but it does get the point across. He would often place current difficulties into a broader perspective. And that broader perspective was almost always oriented to the future. And he'd say, look at this through the big picture lens especially regarding what's going to happen in the future. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 29, he said, I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none. And what he means by that isn't, you know, push your wife aside and go out and do your thing. But what he's trying to say is, I want you to understand that your family is not your only family. There's more to do in life than just hang with your family. 
and treat them well. There are other people you can treat well and be with. Even more important, I think, is Paul's perspective about how we can participate in Jesus' life right here and right now. In Romans 6, verses 3 through 6, he says this. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Right now. He goes on to say, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives we are no longer slaves to sin. Putting other people first, as Jesus clearly did, means dying to self. Every day, dying to self. Jesus perfectly illustrated this death to self by his completely unselfish life and his completely unselfish death. He always lived and he even died for the benefit of other people. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Are you living a meaningful life then? Do you put other people first? That is, do you die to self so that you can put other people first? Do you want to live a happy life? This is what you need to do, Paul says, and you will live one. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he wrote, and all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, the character of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed in the same image. We participate in Jesus such that we become like him. The more we know of Jesus, the more like Jesus we become. This is how we can live a life that's meaningful. This is how we can live a life that will help us to be happy. We keep Christ front and center in our own life. In 2 Corinthians 4, 9 and 10, he wrote, persecuted, and he was, but not forsaken, struck down many times, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Are you participating in Christ in this way? Dying to self, constantly carrying inside of you a death to self. If you are, Paul is saying, you are participating actually in the way that Jesus has defeated the powers of sin and death. You see, God never lives just for himself. He always lives for the benefit of others. Always. Are we doing all that we can to foster church, our church, as our family? And are we making sure that we're a strong part of this church family? Not just by showing up here once in a while, but by dying to self, 
meeting the needs of people in this congregation, meeting the needs of folk in the congregation uh, that are outside of us and haven't yet come in our door. People in the community who would love to become part of a church family. Are we dying to self daily? Putting Christ first? These actions, Paul says, these actions will make us happy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we can be happy and that our happiness is your main concern. And Father, we want to be happy. We want to become happy. Work in our hearts such that we voluntarily die to self. We put others first. Thank you, God, for putting us first. 